TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... <laughs> 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, everyone. This is After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm here. And I'm Young Me. She's back. Yay. Oh, happy holidays, guys. It's so good to be here. Happy holidays. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. I'm feeling so wonderful. <laughs> Although, I hear I missed a pretty good time yesterday. Oh. I got to tell you, the Felix <laughs> Christmas party is becoming an institution. It was spectacular. Really? Yeah. Just the food alone. I mean, the cheese, the charcuterie. I mean, it's crazy. Oh. This is a host. And of course, Lisa as well. I mean, there's just the hosts with the most is all I have to say. <laughs> the host with the most. What is impressive to me about the Felix holiday party is how long it goes. Because people come and go. So from beginning to end, Felix, how long does it last? Uh, so we start late afternoon. And I think eight, nine hours is probably <laughs> typical. <laughs> you know, some people just like to hang out. Yeah, the Europeans. The right? Europeans typically, yes. That's actually a fairly reliable way of meeting Europeans. Go to any party and see... Who is it who doesn't know when to leave? <laughs> you meet lots of Europeans here. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's a good way to close out the year. Yeah, so thinking about 2022, I wanted to hear a little bit about what you liked, what you didn't like about the year. Do you have ideas? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So 2022 it is. All right, young me, 2022, what'd you like? Okay, so here's something I liked. The fall of FTX. <laughs> so now, to be clear, when I say I liked it, I don't mean in a schadenfreude kind of way. And it's definitely not for lack of empathy for the people who lost money. But I do think in many ways, this is the best thing that could happen for the future of digital currencies. And the reason I say that is for a couple of reasons. First... I liked that it happened at a very early time in the industry's history. Remember, five years ago, most people had never heard of crypto. So these mm -hmm. are still mm -hmm. the early days. And because of this, it felt to me like a largely self-contained implosion. And by that, I mean the world of crypto, even though it's very internally incestuous, it's still pretty disconnected from the established legacy financial system. This is why you see headlines about how many billions were lost, but you do not see headlines that highlight the nice retired couple down the street who lost their retirement savings. Yeah, so I like yeah. that. Second, because these are the early days, the learnings from this fiasco can shape the way the space evolves. So just one example, even among crypto believers, this implosion has already significantly shifted the mindset toward regulation. It has reinforced the role of transparency, consumer protections, having compliance protocols in place. To date, it's been just a wild, wild west with so many grifters. So it's kind of like a big caveat emptor to anyone who might have had FOMO about the place. But on the other hand, you know, Digital currencies, I believe, are here to stay, and that includes CBDCs, stablecoins, crypto. These are here to stay, and the health of the space is going to depend on how much robustness we can build into the system. So one of the things that strikes me as really important is the point about contagion, young me, that you made. 
And it makes me think a little bit about the way regulation should go. In this case, if we can really isolate something like crypto from the real economy so that the person down the street doesn't suffer when one of these experiments go wrong, the question is, how much regulation do we really want? If we know that it's the Wild West, and if we know there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of questionable activity, but in the end, it's very much unconstrained. That might actually be the better mix than, say, trying to make the crypto world very much like the regular financial markets, in which case there's probably going to be less innovation, less really interesting things. Mm. The one thing you said, Felix, that I agree with is to the extent that a regulatory regime does emerge out of this, it can't be a replica of the existing regulatory regime. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. And I even think that within the world of digital currencies, the way we think about central bank digital currencies is very different than the way we should think about stable coins, which is very different from the way that we should think about crypto. So I agree with all of that. To date, though, I think there has been an almost philosophical aversion to thinking about even the most minimal amount of oversight And I think this has shifted the mindset somewhat. But I agree with you completely. I totally see where you're going, Young Me. In fact, it's kind of related to one of my big things I loved about 2022. Although rather than think of it as something contained, I kind of would broaden it out. So a year ago, we were sitting at a point where Bitcoin was at 50,000. Facebook had just transformed into Meta. The Nasdaq was at 16,000. And to me, this year is about, maybe unsurprisingly, the end of this crazy period, the end of magical thinking. And so I feel like you, that it's horrible to see that happen because there's blood in the streets and that's terrible. But it's a great relief to those of us who felt and continue to feel like none of that makes any sense to see some return of sanity. And I think that kind of magical thinking has infected so much and FTX and crypto is one example of it, but it ran through the whole economy. And so for me, the thing I loved about 2022 was for too long, we were living in this artificial world and it feels like the beginning of the return to normalcy. And I loved that about 2022. So can I push you on this, Bahir? Because I have been thinking about this quite a bit and I can't decide if I agree or not. And here's why. It feels like the pendulum has swum back for sure. But I'm not sure I'm convinced that this is the new normal either. In other words, to the extent that we were living in a somewhat artificial environment as a result of low interest rates, this too feels like an artificial environment in the opposite direction, where you have the Fed, you know, is absolutely determined to bring asset prices down. And so this too feels unnatural to me. And so I wonder if, in fact, the normal is somewhere in between these two. Yeah, that's a great question. To my mind, I don't think so, in the sense that I don't think the Federal Reserve is interested in bringing down asset prices. I think they're interested in controlling inflation and the collateral damages, these crazy asset prices that we've had for the last two to three years. And it's a return to the things that matter, like earnings and like cash flow. Mm -hmm. So I think of this as the beginning of the return to normalcy as opposed to a temporary thing. But we'll see. I know there's like a heated debate about this, but my sense is it's just the beginning of the return. I have an observation about the macroeconomy as well. And some of the news that I loved the best was just to see how much progress low-wage workers made this particular year. And it's not only those in the lowest deciles of the wage distribution, but you can cut and slice the data in any way you want. And it's the most vulnerable groups that have made the biggest gains. So, for instance, on average, we have 4 or 5% increases in wages. In the lowest decile of wage earners, it's 7 8%. In fact, roughly 40% of low-wage workers have had increases that even exceed inflation, even though inflation was pretty high. And so it's been great for people with not that much education. Maybe the strongest effect that we see is for young workers relative to middle-aged and older workers who have made a lot of progress. So you can slice and dice the wage distribution any way you want, and it's just really fantastic news. Even if you were of 
the view that, well, but inflation hurt most people, ate most of the wage gains. If we really care about income inequality, seeing that low-wage workers make more progress than everyone else in the distribution of income, that's a really important argument. So I think the labor market all in all has been really fantastic news for the most vulnerable groups. And Felix, this feels like this thing is here to stay in the sense that at least on the ground, it feels like the competition for hourly workers continues to be really, really strong. Yes, that sounds exactly right to me. And I would say two things have changed. One is this observation that there's a really hot labor market for hourly workers. This observation that the very best way to participate in these wage increases is to change jobs. Mm -hmm. And so you can think that competition overall has heated up. And then there's also something a little bit about the mindset. I don't know if you remember, but the three of us had a conversation about minimum wage in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And we debated at that point in time, yeah, $13 is maybe okay, but $15, oh my God, we're so worried how many jobs it will destroy and it's just completely irresponsible. I think the conversation has shifted so much. So true. There I see an openness to thinking about higher wages that mm. definitely the three of us didn't really have it. And I didn't really see it among executives a couple of years ago. So true. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. And I totally agree, Felix. It's something to feel fantastic about, especially if we think that they have not been eaten away by inflation. I'm curious what you think of as the causes for this. I could come up with maybe three. One might be, there is news of increased unionization efforts. So you could view this as being a reflection of that. You could view this as a reflection of what you just mentioned, which is maybe minimum wage laws. Or you could view this as a reflection of a strong tide lifts all boats, which is just a very strong economy, very robust labor markets. I tend towards that latter explanation. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's one of the puzzles a little bit about the current times. You open the newspaper and you think we're in free fall. And then you look at the data and you say, oh my God, we have such an incredibly strong economy. In fact, our only problem is that we probably overheated the economy mm -hmm, with all mm -hmm. the additional government spending and then the super loose monetary policy on top of that. But the general mood is not one of we're living in the best of times. And I understand that is in part driven by quickly rising prices. So when I go to a restaurant, it's not really hard for me to say, if it's an expensive place or not. Because I'm looking at much higher <laughs> prices and I don't know, yeah, am I yeah. looking at inflation or yeah. I happen to be at an expensive place? So I can sort of understand the disorientation that comes from a period with quickly rising prices. But at the same time, the fact, Mihir, you're exactly right. It remains true. The economy is in excellent shape. And if you look at it, Decile by decile by decile. And you find that the four lowest deciles of workers have wage increases in excess of inflation. I think that is just really something to celebrate. And the only sad thing is that we don't. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so I have something else I liked. Mm -hmm. I liked the quiet, effective CEOs. I know the media loves to write about loud, mm, blustery CEOs. I am so tired of the media obsession with Elon Musk. What I liked about 2022 is that, in fact, if you look closely, there are so many business leaders you could point to who just seem to be putting their heads down quietly and trying to do their jobs, hmm. uninterested in drawing attention to themselves, mm -hmm. just focused on trying to be effective during some really challenging circumstances. So Satya Nadella at Microsoft, Brian Chesky at Airbnb. If you look at Tim Cook at Apple, he's actually kind of in the middle of a firestorm right now. Mm -hmm. The vulnerability of his supply chain, the high take rates and the controversies around the commissions in the App Store. And this is the year they're pushing into wearables and headsets. And I'm not saying I agree with everything all of these people are doing, but I do appreciate that they're just going about it in what appears to be an egoless way. Sundar Pichar at Alphabet, even Dara at Uber, didn't hear much from him this year. Yeah. Lisa Sue at AMD. All of these 
are aggressive CEOs. So they're not just caretakers. They're moving their businesses forward in aggressive ways, but without any apparent narcissism. I loved it. I'm glad we don't pay much more attention to them because it seems like they have no interest in that. But I do like the fact that if you just look one layer deeper at the people running some of the biggest and most important companies in the world, they're actually being led by people who don't appear to be attention seekers in a narcissistic way. Mm -hmm. I love that, young me. And I think you're absolutely right. Those names you named were exactly right. Even in the retail sector, people like Doug McMillan at Walmart, there's a lot of folks who are doing really good work. (laughs) You know, it's weird. I used this term for Musk a while ago, and it's really stuck with me, which is there's this id of managerial thinking, which he just personifies. But then there's like the ego, the good people who actually reason through things. And that's like a Tim Cook. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what we should be paying a lot more attention to. So I'm completely on board with you, young me. And in part, it's a story about CEOs, but in part, it's also a story about business media. Mm -hmm. It's just so much easier to follow the latest thing (laughs) on Twitter. I cannot tell you how I dislike these stories that is basically five tweets spun together, helped by a narrative that (laughs) is not really a convincing narrative in the first place. And what's really interesting is, what is it about the business media that we don't hear more about these quiet efforts? Because you could write about, there's a million interesting things going on at Microsoft. The work that Larry Kulp is doing at GE is completely invisible in the business press. Mm. It's a really big, important company. It's a really interesting way of running that company. We just don't read about it. Mm -hmm. And I can well imagine that the CEOs themselves are actually quite happy not to be in the spotlight because it must be incredibly distracting. But seen from the point of view of the business media, it's mildly puzzling that we go for the flashy thing yeah. when in fact there's so many interesting things to report. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Me here. So I'll give you something else I really liked about 2022, which is I think these last couple of years have been tough for democracy. Mm. And I actually think authoritarianism took a big shot backwards in the 2022. So we could easily have had the following happen in 2022. Russia could have easily won in Ukraine. We could have had a bunch of election deniers elected in the U.S. There could have been a coup in Germany. There could have been an election in Brazil where there was not a peaceful transition to power. And instead, we had a peaceful transition of power in Germany. Mm. We had a coup that was averted in Germany. We had a pretty remarkable set of losses for election deniers in the U.S. We had Russia. I don't think anybody would have thought they would struggle as much as they've struggled. And we've had, I think in China, the manifestation of what is so difficult about authoritarianism. So in the larger sweep of history, I think the greatest crisis of our time is about authoritarianism. And It's not time to celebrate, but (laughs) it is a time to feel good about people coming to terms with how problematic authoritarianism is and how valuable democracy is. So I feel better than I felt a year ago about that situation. Not like high fives all around or anything, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. a whole lot better than I felt a year ago. The one observation that gives me a little hesitation is if I would see among the people who are in the quote-unquote pro-democracy camp a real support of democracy, right? as opposed to it just so happens that the rules that come with democracy favor my group a little more. And maybe the best manifestation that I can think of is gerrymandering in the United States. So obviously, Democrats will endlessly complain about Republican efforts to discourage voting. And if I knew it comes from a place where they really care about turnout, turnout is just good for democracy. And if we could, we wanted everybody to vote. Instead, you see in places where the Democrats are completely in control, like New York, they do the worst kind of 
gerrymander that you can possibly imagine. So it's not really buying into democracy. It's just yeah, right now, the forces are aligned in a way that democracy is good for me. And so I like democracy, which is exactly what I fear the most about authoritarianism. I think that's right. I do think, though, that there's something special about the really authoritarian impulse as opposed to the anti-democratic impulse. Let me try to distinguish mm, between those okay. two, right? Yeah. The authoritarian thing is the strong man, strong woman thing yeah. where they really don't care about elections. They don't really care about even vaguely democratic processes. That's what I really worry about. We should also worry about what you're worrying about, which is just this battle on the front lines of why the U.S. is not a more democratic country mm -hmm, because of gerrymandering, mm -hmm. because of the Senate, because of lots of things. I think that's true. But to me, the existential risk is the authoritarian one. And that's the one that I mm -hmm. maybe feel a little bit better about this yeah, year. I agree. Again, yeah. I'm not breaking up the champagne, but I'm feeling better. <laughs> and I think in many ways, the last decade has been sobering for Americans who are probably really complacent about the strength of our democratic institutions. And I, for one, am still finding myself having to reconcile the fact that our country is split 51-49 mm -hmm. or 52-48, but mm -hmm. roughly 50-50 in many, many ways. And I think that has really been brought home to us because I think prior to the last six or seven years, there was just a sense that the arc of history, the arc of our nation was just moving in one direction. And I think what has been quite sobering for all of us is to sort of realize that, no, actually, there is quite a bit of division that we have to somehow figure out how to reconcile as a country. Having said that, I agree completely with Mihir. This last election felt so important. Aside from the outcome of the elections themselves, the fact that we're not getting a lot of denialism mm -hmm, post-election, mm -hmm, right. there are little spots, little pockets of it. But the fact that that is not a dominant narrative right now mm -hmm. feels like a huge existential win. And I agree with you about your points around the world as well. If you squint, you can see lots of reasons for optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I'm squinting. Yeah, exactly. Squint hard. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's a really good one. Felix, what about you? This is going to sound shallow <laughs> by comparison, but I tried to buy a car in 2022. <laughs> I cannot begin to tell you how miserable an experience it is. Okay. You know, it's not something that you do very often. And I thought, oh, this is 2022. Of course, I decide the car that I want. And then I go online. I write to a bunch of dealers. They sent me their prices and conditions, and then I'm done. <laughs> in my imagination, that's how buying a car works in 22. And I can tell you, it cannot be more different. In fact, what was maybe the most remarkable thing was how everything that was wrong with buying a car in the real world, when you actually went to a dealer, they transferred everything beautifully into the online world. So for instance, <laughs> I happened to be abroad when I test drove the car that I was most interested in. So I knew everything. I knew the car that I wanted. And so it was literally just me riding to all the dealers in my neighborhood and asking, do you have it? And how much is it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the first thing you'll see is they're super fast at responding. Like your inbox is full for weeks. None of the responses have remotely anything to do with what you asked them. <laughs> and in fact, even after, I would say, maybe two months of trying really hard, I have failed to get a single firm quote oh. for the car that I was interested in. Are you serious? Frankly, it's in the end a little sad to see that an industry totally failed to make use of a new channel that they had. First of all, I'm so sorry this happened to you. But secondly, I was in the airport recently in the new LaGuardia. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting. It's completely different now. Let's say you want to grab some food. There's kiosks now. You don't order verbally. Mm -hmm. Everything has been completely transformed. And then when I got to my destination, I had to go rent a car. And it was like being catapulted back to 1970. <laughs> and so it's like we're living in this world where there are some parts of our commercial lives that have become very efficient, uh -huh. very streamlined. And then there are other pieces of our commercial lives that have just become completely inefficient, continue to be filled with friction. 
I don't have an explanation for it. Well, I too feel like I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's pent up demand in the economy, right? So, yes, well, that's what I'm right? curious about, right? Like, so one question for you is because the auto market has been so crazy for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Is this just somehow about seller power? And second question is, did you ever physically go in to any dealer? It's clear they're trying very hard to move you back to the sales channels that they're most familiar with. I see. And I think that probably has to do with this negotiating power. Yeah. You would also get two levels of email. So you would fruitlessly email back and forth with the salesperson. And then maybe after a week or so, you would get the manager's email. And the manager would ask you if the salespeople have done a good job. But my sense is the salespeople are so constrained in what they can and cannot do. It's impossible for them to do a good job. Mm. And I loved your point, Young Me. You even see it in B2B software now, where what we like and don't like is so informed by the best consumer apps. Yeah. So that many of the cumbersome B2B software is just like people look at it and it's like, what yeah. is happening here? Because you're used to best in class experiences. And mm-hmm. mm. instead of being inspired by what's possible today, It is a little disappointing to see that the dealers haven't really taken advantage of all the opportunities that exist in this new channel. Can I go on a consumer rant now, too? (laughs) So here's my little rant, Uh which is I feel like Hoka's have done to sneakers what Humvees (laughs) did to the SUV. I feel like Hoka's are the new Hummers where everybody has got to get a sneaker which is taller. Like, there's like a sneaker arms race getting bigger and bigger. I like it. The platform sneakers, you don't like it? I don't like it. I love it. it. The big chunky ones? What is going on? Like, people are (laughs) adding like inches and inches on their sneakers. Yes, yes. And I've tried Hoka's. Oh my God. I don't know. They didn't work for me. But I'm just thinking there's an arms race out there. I think it's because women like it. Is it about adding altitude? First of all, they're super comfortable. They're kind of bouncy. Yeah, you add altitude, I think. It gives you a different look. I don't know. This is just my theory, but I love it. Well, sneakers have become, obviously, much more fashion-oriented in the last five or seven years. Mm -hmm. Like, so, for example, you know the classic Converse Mm All-Stars? Yeah. I would never buy those. But then they've gone chunky, platformy. And I was walking by and I was like, oh, so I think all of these brands have discovered that they can increase their TAM if they just go chunky. So that's what they're doing. Everything's chunky. Everything's kind of chunky. I'm down on it, but I hear where you're coming at. I also think I don't need elevation for my sneakers. Well, aren't you like six foot four? I know. I get it, but I'm not a fan of this trend. Are you into the dad sneakers that are really hot right now? The kind of ugly dad sneakers? Those are very big right now. I don't think so, but it could be accidentally I'm in that market. (laughs) (laughs) An accidental fashion victim. Exactly. That's my rant. All right. So that was something you dislike, but I like. Yeah. There you go. Okay, so I can give you something I liked and disliked. At the same time. Mm-hmm. Great. I like and I dislike the evolving workplace norms that emerged in 2022. So, for example, I love casual attire. I remember back this time last year, Felix, you made a prediction uh-huh. that 2022 is going to be the end of the necktie. Yes. I don't think I'm ever going to dress business formal again, ever. <laughs> I love this so much. I also love that we can now be a little bit more thoughtful about whether we need to do meetings in person, some things you actually can do via Zoom. What I don't like is I see a lot of companies and employees being knee-jerk in having a point of view and making Mm -hmm, blanket mm -hmm. statements like, we need everyone back in the office, or I'm never setting foot in the office again. The idea that one size fits all makes me kind of crazy right now, but there's a lot I like about it, in particular, the casual attire. To me, it's so interesting how more formal attire has now moved from the typical thing in the workplace to selected places in our free time. Social events, right? Yes. Yes. I noticed at first a number of restaurants that now require jackets. It's not like your great-grandfather's nightclub, oh, we are at jackets only place but really cool hip places that all of a sudden will not accept someone if you come in even the chunkier stuff sneakers and will require more formal attire <laughs> i was recently at the symphony 
And I noticed the mix of people who dress up completely changed. Used to be, I don't know, maybe 50% jeans, 50% a little more formal. Now I think it's more like... 70, 30, 80, 20 or so. Yeah. And I love this, like this observation that it's not uniform-like and you have to look that way because you're going to work, but you're choosing to celebrate particular moments in life. Yeah. You're doing something special and then you dress up and then it's really fun. I think what's interesting, Felix, about what you said is it's not that in part the ratios changed maybe from 50-50 to 80-20, but it's all of these kinds of different events have now more heterogeneity than they would have had otherwise. Yeah. So a night yeah. out at the theater yeah. 20 years ago, there's a uniform for that. Or 50 years ago, yeah. there's a uniform for yeah, that. Yeah. There's and a- now you will see people who are dressed in that way that they used to be dressed. But then there are going to be people who have a different notion of what formality is or mm-hmm. a different notion of what dressing up is. Mm-hmm. And similarly in the workplace, I think the good news is it's not all sweatpants and yoga pants. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I completely There's like a smart agree. casual, mm-hmm. and many people have different interpretations of what smart yeah. casual means. Yeah. <laughs> it allows for a lot more expression. So I think the good news in all these things is, you know, I'm not exactly somebody should comment on this because I wear one color all the time, but there's more <laughs> opportunities for like expression yeah. in all these yep. different settings. Yes. So I think that's all very, very good. Yeah. And I think in the workplace, you still want professionalism. Right. But what I found is that even though there's so much more variety, it's still very respectful. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. And it doesn't seem to get in the way. Felix, what else do you have? So I have a little public announcement. Uh-oh. Can we please... Stop building platforms. <laughs> Are you talking about elevated sneakers? <laughs> I'm thinking about online intermediaries. Oh, the business model. Okay. <laughs> that are supposed to somehow make the world a better place, and they mostly don't. I had a window renovation project, and when you go online, there's like so many opportunities to be paired with contractors and be paired with manufacturers and be paired with insurance companies that will insure your new windows. And There's an endless list of services. And basically what all of these companies do, as far as I can tell, is they collect your information and they probably get some kind of a fee for relaying that information to someone who A, actually knows which questions to ask, and B, who provides the actual service. So we have hundreds of layers in the economy now that are just totally useless. And the lure, I think, is just, oh my God, here's a business where we basically don't do anything. And we get to be rich if it happens to scale because we can charge referral fees. And it creates the worst of customer experiences. And frankly, when I just think, if all of these people actually fixed windows did something meaningful, (laughs) added value to the economy. Oh my God, it would be really amazing. But no, we're all in the referral business right now and it's just horrible. (laughs) I think what you're saying is profound and right, but I'm curious about why you think it is. Partly is because people want to start businesses that are absurd. I get that. But isn't it also that they've gotten something wrong about where and how platforms add value? My intuition is that it's not that there are not problems to solve. So window installations can be done at various levels of quality. And since it's not something that you do very often, knowing who will do a good job and who will not do a good job, that would be really valuable. But of course, at the same time, it's expensive to do and it's not the easiest because how would you know whether a contractor is reliable, not reliable? And so my sense is... It's part of thinking about the economy as sort of a lottery. And if you hit it big, it'll be really amazing. But you know that the probabilities are not so great. And so people are just lazy. Yeah. I do think it's the thing that you said that we hear, forgetting that the whole idea is to add value. If you're going to insert yourself in the process as a platform provider, then there has to be a huge value add. And it's got to be in the form of Number one, saving the consumer time and as well as the supplier time, making really good matches, making the whole process more efficient, saving money for everyone. I mean, these are all value-added benefits associated with having that intermediary. If not, then you're just an intermediary. And to Felix's point, it's like, (laughs) why are you there? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. How about you, Mihir? I've got something else I'm a little down on. And we talked about this briefly, but 
I've become kind of really down on this woke capitalism thing. BlackRock, as one example, has been accused of being a woke capitalist. And on the one hand, I'm kind of sympathetic, which is I'm no fan of corporate purpose and ESG. But the folks who are angry about that have kind of taken up this banner of woke capitalism and suggested that somehow people are using corporations in these deeply political ways. I think the problem with the movement that I feel is it's kind of self-defeating. By using that phrase, first off, it is so difficult and polarizing. But more to the point, if you want corporations and businesses to be less the subject of political debates and less active in those debates, then by using that phrase and by painting them in that light and by doing it in such a polarizing way, you only add to the problem. (laughs) So in a way, I'm sympathetic to the idea that maybe ESG and purpose have gotten way out of hand. But by brandishing these terms and basically playing the same game in the other direction, it also feels problematic. So I don't know. I'm kind of over woke capitalism. I love how you delineated the fact that you might have your own personal concerns about ESG, but there's something else that happens when you label it woke capitalism Mm -hmm. and you try to put it in a box and create this polarization. I mean, ESG is a very nascent concept. And the way we're implementing right now, it's kind of all over the place. And we can have a conversation about to the extent that it's productive or counterproductive. And I think that's a really healthy conversation for us to have. Yeah, exactly. But when you try to label something, oh, that's woke capitalism, put it in a box, you're trying to end the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to say you're either on that side or you're not. Exactly. It's really counterproductive. And I think that there are a lot of companies that are earnestly trying to do the right thing and not in a crazy way, but in a sensible way, in a socially responsible way. And they're trying to thread some very difficult needles and it doesn't help when you're trying to label things one way or another. I like that one. Felix, what else do you got that you like? I had this one moment in March of 2022 that was magical and I think I will not forget it for a very long period of time. Was that when we taped that episode? (laughs) (laughs) That must have been one of our tapings, Felix. Yes, that might also be true, although... Will not forget for a long time. I'm not so sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Felix. It's right after spring break, and I taught one of the first-year classes in the MBA program, and we were allowed to take off the masks. And I thought, well, you know, no big deal. I know everyone. We've had conversations for the first part of the semester. And then taking off the masks was just absolutely magical. People laughed. People responded differently to each other's comments. And it was just this really wonderful reminder of just how rich human communication is outside what we say to each other. And one of the things that was interesting for me was I completely underestimated it. I had such a diminished functional view of what conversation in the classroom is. And then it just reminded me of how totally wrong I was about what it means and the meaning that gets transported among people who like each other and cheer each other on and want to have a good time. I got goosebumps right now. (laughs) And this is why end of the year is such a good time because you also have reminded me of something very similar that happened to me, which is the first time I taught without a mask. I also was just overjoyed and I remembered why we went into this career (laughs) in part, right? Like it was just such a special time. And I had kind of forgotten that. And so I'm so glad you reminded me of it because when we were teaching in masks, frankly, I was fine with it. It was okay. It was okay. It was fine. It was totally okay. But then when you lose it, you realize just everything you said is exactly right. Absolutely. I totally agree too. That's a nice one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have one more, young me? Oh, I have one more. Here's something I liked, but also kind of terrified me in 2022. The glimpses of the future we got this year From OpenAI. So OpenAI is a research lab pushing AGI, artificial general intelligence. Yeah. Released two betas. I'm sure you guys saw two betas this year that (laughs) blew my mind. So the first was Dolly. Yeah. By the way, for our listeners out there, if you haven't tried these two betas, you should go sign up at OpenAI and just play with them. They're incredible. The first is Dolly. So this is an AI system that generates original art just from a natural language 
request. So you can say, hey, show me an image of a piece of furniture in the shape of a banana or something, but rendered using a Picasso-like style or something like that. Or you can say, give me a Van Gogh-like painting of a Harvard Business School professor drawing an equation on a chalkboard. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> it's fabulous, yes. The second one, you guys have tried chat GPT, haven't you? Yes, <laughs> yeah. of course. Oh my God. <laughs> have you had long <laughs> philosophical conversations with chat GPT? I mean, it's astounding. It's, it's astounding. astounding. It is it's a astounding. chat bot that uses leading-edge AI. You can have a conversation with it about anything. It can produce text or answers on command. You should not let your daughters go near it when they do their homework. I agree. Because you can say, you know, write me a two-page essay comparing these two works of literature, and it will just spit it out. Produce something fantastic, yeah. One of the most remarkable things is, I would ask different questions, like give me a list of M&A targets, like those kinds of things. And very often the answers are spot on. Or like, do you think there is excess supply of office space in the United States? And the answer you get is just unreal that a machine can answer. But then what I also found is if the answer is profoundly wrong, it also sounds very convincing. Yes, super confidence. It's almost (laughs) like a person with no filter. It can be completely misleading. But doesn't it make it seem even more human? Because it's like having that dinner party guest right. who's just completely wrong, but yet totally confident <laughs> and just will go on and on. Yes. And you're thinking, that person's completely wrong, but they're 100% sure they're right. But I wonder, in these dinner party conversations, I often find when you then push a little bit, you will eventually, I think, get to a set of assumptions that the person makes, a particular set of experiences that are maybe very different from your experiences, and you come to see the world very differently. But what I suspect with AI is there's no such thing. It's just localized misinformation that happens to be aggregated in a way that ultimately produces nonsense. Think about it in medical applications. No, I know. But this is an early version though, right? Yeah. Yeah. I confess I had two very weird reactions to it. I switched between, oh my God, this is incredible. But then there were other times when I'm like, wait, this just feels like somebody's Googling. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, is this different than like a bunch of people Googling? But the other reaction I have is... I'm just trying to think back to like Felix's last thing he liked, which was like this wonderful portrait of human communication and the joy of teaching without a mask. And this time that we are all spending with ChatGPT, (laughs) where we're like amazed at the humanity of this intelligence. And I don't know, there's so much of a contradiction between those two experiences. So this is why I like it now, but maybe I don't like it. I don't know how I feel about it. (laughs) But I was thinking about 15, 20 years ago, one of the reasons Google and to some extent the iPhone transformed our lives is because they gave us access to digital information in a very organized and coherent way. Right. Since then, so many consumer innovations of the past decade have all been built on top of that basic functionality. Mm -hmm. So let's build a social network based on that digitization, or let's build a mapping system, or let's build an e-commerce system. Mm -hmm. And I think with ChatGPT and Dolly, it feels different because you're not just organizing digital information, they're actually producing content. And so now if you imagine, let's say, a decade of new applications built on top of this fundamental technology. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't even know how to think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think about mm-hmm. that, that's when I kind of freak out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Where is this going? Because OpenAI will take it so far, but it's the stuff that's built on top of it that I think is going to blow our minds. The other element that I find so interesting here is that these two advances don't come from the largest and richest organizations in the economy. In so many ways, you always think, well, AI is sort of a game for the big guys who have Mm. unlimited access to data, who can throw thousands and thousands of research scientists at a particular problem. And here you have 
a modest size outfit. Yeah. That basically does amazing work. So part of what I loved about the story is that it didn't come from Microsoft, that yeah. didn't come from Apple, that it yeah. came from another organization. Yeah. Did you guys know it could create poetry even? Oh, no. <laughs> I fear the worst. So right before we began taping, I went on and I asked it to produce a poem about after hours. You want to hear it? <laughs> okay, this is what it spit out. Oh, God. Introducing After Hours, the podcast with flair, hosted by three professors, each with expertise to share. There's the finance guru with numbers flowing through his veins. He'll make you groan with his jokes and puns while still making you think about everything. There's the strategy whiz who Bursts with insight and wit, who have you chuckling and learning at once? It's all a perfect fit. And then there's the consumer junkie. She knows what makes people tick. She dishes advice on branding and marketing and how to make your product stick. So tune into After Hours and hang out with this motley team. Listening to this podcast is sure to make your day dream. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You're crying. I wish they could see you right now. Here's it's hilarious. In tears. Oh Isn't my God. that hilarious? It's so good, right? It's crazy. It's so good. And they got that motley part right for sure. Yeah, the motley team. <laughs> oh my God. That is right. spectacular. But you know, what's crazy is I first said, Give me a poem about three professors, a finance professor, a strategy professor, and a marketing professor. So I started with that. Mm -hmm. And so then it gave me, and then I realized, no, 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 I want one about after hours. And so I said, give me a poem about after hours, a business podcast. And because it was part of the same conversation, it assumed that the professors were still, in the podcast. Yes. Wow. Uh -huh. yeah. That's why it had the stuff about the professors. Yeah. And the one other thing I should say is it gave me a poem so I read it and I just wrote, make it lighter and funnier. And then this was it. This was wow. Because the yeah. one before it, it was a little bit serious. And so then I said, make it lighter and funnier. And then it gave me this one. Wow. wow. And I was like, oh, I'll take this one. Okay. We'll post it on our website. <laughs> no, we there won't. <laughs> okay. Recommendations for the end of 2022. Felix, what do you got? I have a book that I just finished reading that I absolutely loved. It's by an author I had known before, Chimananda Ngozi Adichie, and maybe best known for Half of a Yellow Sun. But this is an older book of hers called Americana. And it's the story of a Nigerian person who moves from Nigeria to the United States and then experiences the United States as a black person in America, but also as a Nigerian in America. And much of the story revolves around these two parts of her identity and how they relate to what happens in the United States at this period of time. And what I found absolutely fascinating is as a person who moved from somewhere else to the United States myself, there was always this interesting contrast. Some of the things that you will experience in America today, you only experience when you're black mm. and it's really race. Mm -hmm. And for her and for the person in the book, Everything is reflected as a function of her being black. Mm. But I share many of the experiences that this person has, even though obviously race is not the underlying cause. So yeah. for instance, and I think everybody who moves to the U.S. will notice this, you have to be really exuberant in your use of language. Right. You have to say <laughs> wonderful and spectacular and amazing all the time. And so she yeah. talks about how the use of English in Nigeria is very different from the use of English. And of course, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I went exactly through that same thing. That's like, oh, my God, all of a sudden, everything is wonderful and amazing and terrific. And it just made me think a lot about which part of our experiences really reflect the kinds of things that we 
think they reflect? Maybe it's the more salient part of our identities and which parts just have to do with different countries or different places. Mm. A really wonderful book. I've heard others talk about and I've read reviews of this book and no one has described it the way that you just did, Felix. I think you might love it. But here, I'm sure you've read reviews of this book. I've never read the books, but yeah, she's gotten a lot of attention and exactly. it's a good reason to kind of actually take it up. That's great. Yeah, you really yeah. did sell it. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> All right. So young me, what do you got? So, you guys, recently, Christine McVie passed away. Oh, yeah. So, for anyone who is of our generation, she was, of course, a seminal member of Fleetwood Mac. And I just grew up listening to Fleetwood Mac. I had a poster of them on my (laughs) wall when I was young. (laughs) It made me so, so sad. I was such a big fan. And so... Of course, if you want to go back and sort of relive the heyday of that band, you know, the big album, of course, is Rumors. People love the album that came before that featured Rhiannon. Tusk is a very controversial album, but I loved it. But if you want to really do a deep cut, my favorite album was their 1980 live album, Mm -hmm. which captured them at their very peak. And it's got a lot of their hits but it's also got some deeper cuts. But it really just captures the band live at its prime. And as many people have talked about, there was something about the harmony of those three voices, Christine McVie, Stevie Nicks, and Lindsay Buckingham, that was just not just magical, but really captured that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And it was just so fantastic. So I have been listening to that relentlessly since she passed. That's my recommendation, that 1980 live album from Fleetwood Mac. Wonderful. I have to say that... Rumors album is the one I remember the best. Oh, yeah. But I also have this weird memory because at the time I was like, I don't know, like 10 years old. And it came out at the same time as Talking Head 77. Oh, yeah. I mm. And I remember <laughs> I said this thing to my brother and I was like, it was probably the most brilliant thing I ever said, which was the Fleetwood Mac band. They all look so weird, but the music is so normal. And the Talking Heads <laughs> band, they all look so normal. normal. The music is so, so weird. For a 10-year-old, that is very insightful. Wow. Yeah. That is so true. Profound. It's been all downhill Oh, my God. Then. That yeah. was true. Well, that was a good era of music. My yeah. God. Yeah. Wasn't it? I mean, all that music. That was. Oof. It was. Okay. What about you, Mahir? So, you know, immediately when I think about the phrase accessories, I think of something that's optional, something that's extravagant. Yeah. Something that you don't need. Yeah. But I'm here to tell you that the key to surviving any winter is a great scarf. Mm, (laughs) True. I was recently gifted a wonderful scarf by my daughters. And I got to tell you, if you have a good scarf, you don't need a coat. You don't need anything. A good (laughs) scarf that allows you to feel warm. Now, if I don't wear a scarf, I'm actually really cold. So my recommendation is to treat yourself to... A wonderful scarf. Now, Mihir, is this a new discovery? Because I know that Rawi is Mr. Scarf. Well, he's the champion. Although he wears a scarf like all year round, as far all as I remember. Really kind, yes. preferably. This is like a winter. I don't yes. think Rawi's scarves are about heat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can wear a sports coat and a scarf, and you're in great shape. Yeah. You don't need to wow. be any warmer. And then it's just the ultimate winter thing. And I've only discovered this, frankly, over the last five years. I never cared about scarves. And now scarves are the best thing. Yeah. And I have this strange day in the spring for the first week when you go out and you don't wear a scarf. Yes. You feel like you're underdressed, even though nothing to do with temperature. And your neck feels naked. Yeah. It's really strange. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Well, I have to say that you guys look good in scarves. Both of you. Thank if you. I were to be honest, Raleigh yeah. is at the top. <laughs> yeah. So no one reaches Raleigh Heights when it comes to fashion and scarves. But I would put the two of you right underneath that. Oh, fast followers is what we call it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need a chat GPT poem about Raleigh and scarves. <laughs> and scarves. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so that was so fun, guys. Have a good holiday. Have a good holiday. So this was it for today. Thank you for listening. After Hours, a podcast from the TED Audio Collective.
Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 